to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the racist and homophobic public messaging around monkeypox, the U.S. threatening Ethiopia and Eritrea with the label of genocide, and new proposed legislation that would declassify the FBI's infamous Pro. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by Sputnik News analyst and transgender activist Morgan Archukin. Morgan, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Morgan, as the monkeypox epidemic continues to spread here in the United States, I mean, it's a serious problem that doesn't seem to be uh, getting a really serious response from the government. And uh, I think a part of the issue is uh, there were really two narratives that emerged fairly quickly once it became clear that the monkeypox would become a, a serious factor here in the U.S. So on the one hand, it seemed that a lot of the uh, uh, media coverage of the monkeypox would feature uh, images of African people. And then when statistics started coming out about who was being impacted, who was contracting monkeypox, it was being heavily implied that uh, uh, basically it was uh, gay and bisexual men who were uh, uh, the chief group, if you will, that was suffering from this malady, uh, basically casting monkeypox as uh, a gay plague of sorts. And you recently published a piece about this on uh, Covert Action magazine entitled Showing Old Prejudices, U.S government falsely associate monkeypox outbreak with gays, bisexuals, and Africans. And so I think there's a lot uh, uh, to get in here, Morgan, both in terms of what's happening in this moment and how it ties to some things we've seen historically. But to begin, uh, how is it that this narrative around uh, Africans and gay and bisexual men being uh, uh, basically, I guess, the vanguard uh, of monkeypox, uh, how does that even begin? Where does that come from? Yeah. So, well, the association with, um, it's associated with, with Africa and Africans because um, the disease was discovered in West Africa uh, originally in the 19, late 1950s as a disease that infected monkeys. And then it was first identified in humans in 1970. Uh, so, and, and it's always been very, very limited, small outbreaks. There's never really been proven kind of human to human transmission that much. So it was, it was kind of a very kind of scarcely encountered disease. Uh, so, but there was this, sometimes they, they, people would, you know, contract it and then fly out and go someplace else. And then there might be a small outbreak that started there. So this isn't the first time that this has happened, but this one has grown in, uh, in such a major way. And it's kind of similar to COVID-19. There's also this kind of investigation of like, well, maybe it was circulating before people really realized that it was circulating. So there's a whole thing there, but basically, um, there, there, the, Believed origins, or the the or the the aware, uh, you know, origins people are aware of um, of this outbreak, originally came from a guy who flew from Nigeria, I believe, to the United Kingdom uh, in early May, and so the they were they were tracking a handful of cases in the UK, um, less less than a dozen, uh, you know, in early May there, 
And there was two different groups of people who they had kind of found little clusters uh, that had contracted it. Because you get it very similar to how you get smallpox um, or, or, or other similar diseases by touching infected lesions or touching things that touch infected lesions like cloth or bedding um, or, or whatever. So it, it, it's kind of spread, you know, through a direct contact network like that. So. Um, but ha- um, four of those people, when, when there was only eight cases in the UK, four of them were um, a group of gay and bisexual men. And so it was at that point that the uh, British uh, health, not the health ministry, but the um, health security agency, the HSA, uh, put out a bulletin saying that queer men should be specially monitored for signs of monkeypox. Um, it was it was supposed to be an alert for health agencies, you know, that are testing for STIs and things um, to be able to look and to know what to look for uniquely when dealing with monkeypox, because it can look like STIs uh, and be kind of mistaken for that. And that was also kind of the theory behind that, that alert. And that idea was that queer men are, are more on top of, you know, weird lesions or, or things, you know, that you identify and you go get tested for those things. And that, that's, that's, that's a more common practice in that community anyway. So that's, that it was kind of probably pretty, you know, understandably assumed that the people who would, who have, who contracted monkeypox would assume it was an STI of some kind and go get tested for it on that basis. So there's, there's, there's a certain degree of sense to their approach, but their messaging was very careless. It was done very public with no additional like qualifications about like, hey, that doesn't mean that only queer men can get this. And so the media, always hungry for a new viral story, and, and especially in the pandemic, you know, a new um, panicky story about a new disease coming out or something, grabbed on it and ran with this headline and this line that it was um, – that it was especially, you know, a danger to gay and bisexual men and that, you know, they were the ones who needed to look out for it. Uh, and uh, that's kind of really how the whole ball got rolling. And of course, because of the misinformation that is being spread about, uh, you know, monkeypox being associated with queer men, people are not getting tested. They're not being careful, as as careful as they should be, because they're not a part of that group of people that the media has associated with this disease. I mean, how wide-reaching is just just the impact, the negative negative impact of uh, the media associating monkeypox with queer men when the medical community is clear that anyone and everyone can actually contract this virus. Yeah, well, I'm I'm not sure that the medical community is is so clear. There are certain certain definitely certain agencies that are very, you know, their their messaging is very mixed. They'll say both things at once. They'll say this, you know, that they'll say both narratives at once. They'll say that that it's almost entirely an outbreak among queer men, but then they'll also say don't. But everybody can get it, so don't think that it's like a gay only thing. And it's like these people are only going to listen to one of these things. You know what I mean? So yeah, I mean the the the, the danger is multifaceted. One, there is the danger that most people are not. We don't know how big the outbreak is. 
because but, but we do know that there are people who have all the signs of monkeypox who have gone in to get tested and been rejected for a monkeypox test because they did not have what they call the diagnostic indicators, um, one of which is that the person who's going to be tested is supposed to be a queer or bisexual man. So they're only testing or almost only testing queer and bisexual men and then then turning around and saying, oh, well, you know, all the people, all the positive tests we're getting are, you know, queer and bisexual men. So it must only be in this community, but they've already decided that's the only community they're testing. So it's if you could do it to COVID-19, too, you could only test queer, queer men for COVID-19 and then turn around and say, well, clearly this is a disease of gay and bisexual men. Like, imagine if that was the approach they had, you know, imagine how that would disguise the real extent of the outbreak. And that's really what we're dealing with with here. So there's the one side where people don't think they can get it or or don't realize, you know, even the health authorities don't know the whole scope of the outbreak to be able to allocate resources, track the spread of the illness and take appropriate actions. But also it's reinforcing old prejudices. It's reinforcing homophobia. It's uh, it's reinforcing you know, racism against Africans with this perception that, you know, people are used to seeing the, the lesions on black skin in these, in these, you know, example photos and articles or headline photos or whatever in articles. So there's that association and also this association that, you know, it's only the gays and bisexuals, they need to take care of themselves, you know, and, or they're going to spread it to the rest of us, you know? So, so, and, and they should know better when it comes to that kind of messaging, because that's the exact same thing that happened with AIDS. Exactly. And there's so many parallels, I think, with COVID and uh, the AIDS crisis. I mean, you know, folks will remember in the early days of COVID, there was this narrative of, oh, you know, it only impacts older people with pre you know, uh, existing preconditions and so on and so forth. So I'll be fine. I mean, number one, not only is that, uh, you know, a dismissive way to think about the elderly, but but it puts uh, people in a very a uh, dangerous situation with this uh, disease. And it's similar, I think, with what we're seeing with monkeypox. So people may say, well, I'm not a gay or bisexual man. I don't live on the African continent, so I can just kind of go about my life more or less as normal. And so just this, 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 uh, this, uh, bad messaging and this mixed messaging could have some serious implications for people's health. And I want to give an example of this mixed messaging that you actually noted in your piece, Morgan, um, from back in July 27th. And this is from uh, Tedros Adnum Jebriasis, the chief of the World Health Organization, who said, quote, the focus for all countries must be engaging and empowering communities of men who have sex with men to reduce the risk of infection and onward transmission to provide care for those infected and to safeguard human rights and dignity. Now, later on, he would say, uh, quote, anyone exposed can get monkeypox, but that's after saying 98% of cases so far are among men who have sex with men. So I think you're correct, Morgan, that even though uh, some of these major um, uh, health agencies, even global uh, health agencies, even though they may actually say both things, it's clear that there's only one narrative that's going to dominate in people's consciousness, I think, uh, precisely because of this uh, uh, history of, you know, uh, attributing uh, uh, certain diseases and ailments to uh, the LGBTQ community, as you mentioned, including AIDS. And I was actually hoping you could get into uh, uh, some of that history as you do in your piece, as I think a lot of it is uh, instructive in terms of what we're seeing with how monkeypox is being portrayed. 
Mm. Yeah. So there's, there's, and I mean, the thing about AIDS is that there, there was a certain, like, like they were correct to, to look at, like, like the outbreak did first happen in the, in the gay community and, and it was a sexually transmitted infection, although it took them several years to figure that out. Um, but you know, the, the way that they reacted to those facts was very homophobic and very stigmatizing, um, you know, right down to it was the original name of the disease was um, for a very short period of time was was grid. You know, it was gay, uh, gay related um, uh, immune uh, dis- disease. And um, yeah, so, so you know, it, it, it was it's they very quickly realized that that was. A, a mistake because half of the people they had found with the illness were not gay. So how are you going to call it? You know, that kind of thing. Um, it later, they, they, the name arose, this wasn't an official name, but they began to refer to it as the 4-H disease, referring to the four groups who were, they were finding most commonly affected by it, which was homosexuals, hemophiliacs, heroin users, and Haitians. And for each of those communities, there was also a totally separate like reason that they were being heavily affected by it and uh and that had nothing to do really with 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 um you know with with some kind of like personal responsibility you know that was kind of the way that the messaging around it was was basically like the gays and the people who were infected by it like they, they they brought this on themselves by their lifestyle they're posing a danger to us because of that and like they need to take care of themselves and that was messaging that went all the way up to the white house like george hw bush when he was president called it called a the disease where you can control it spread by your own personal behavior and that that stigma led to it wasn't just oh there's homophobic attacks oh you know it's mean it hurts people's feelings but it led to years and years of neglect when it came to uh, funding to research the disease and to find treatment or a cure and that went on as tens of thousands of people died of AIDS and and it took really powerful grassroots activism by groups like ACT UP who physically stormed into the the, the, the offices of these um, corporate pharmaceutical companies. Um, they went they they into you know Dr. Fauci's office. He was very newly as the head of NIAID at that point, you know, the NIH, the FDA, they were lobbying and, and pressuring and protesting all of these places, demanding that they give more funding and more emphasis on research for AIDS. And they said, we're dying of AIDS. Test the drugs on us because we're going to die anyway. So that, that was how desperate the gay community was in the late 80s and early 90s because of this neglect, because of this attitude that it's just it's just a disease for the gays and you know they don't we don't like them very much anyway who cares if they if they die off or they suffer so so there is a real danger in pretending that a disease that only only affects gay, pretending a disease only affects gay people when it is actually a danger to everybody definitely and i think another comparison um between COVID-19 and monkeypox is that not only have these narratives been harmful in terms of health approaches to actually addressing the issue, it's also resulted in a real life violence. In the case of uh, uh, COVID-19, there was a wave of anti-Asian hate crime here in the U.S., both under Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And it appears like we've seen uh, uh, some similar incidents uh, uh, with regards to the monkeypox that you touch on 
also in your article. And so uh, I was hoping you could tell us some about what happened there, uh, Morgan, and what it says about the dangers of this kind of messaging. Yeah, this actually happened here in Washington, D.C. Um, there was there was a gay couple who was walking down the street on a Sunday afternoon and, uh, you know, a group of people kind of, you know, clocked them as gay, basically, and attacked them, physically attacked them and, you know, called them, you know, monkeypox, you know, whatever, uh, and other homophobic slurs. And, you know, I mean, sent these people to the ER, you know, to get to get stitches and, and stuff. So it was um, it was, you know, it was, it was really nasty and uh, kind of kind of a nightmare scenario. But also you have, you know, far right people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Tucker Carlson and and other people kind of picking picking it up and uh, and turning it into an anti-gay thing, too. And, of course, both of them are already virulently, you know, anti-LGBTQ and expend a lot of energy to attack that community anyway. And so this is just kind of grist to their mill uh, to to further demonize, you know, LGBTQ people uh, in that way. So there's, you know, it's really kind of rolling. And they have their own agenda for that as well, you know, keeping the working class divided, keeping working people divided, um, fighting each other so that they don't fight the ruling class. Uh, and, and so this is really, like I said, kind of just grist to their mill, you know, this is, this is just, you know, fuel for their fire of, um, of bigotry that they're already trying to spread by any means possible. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Morgan, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the U.S. government weaponizing sanctions against the Horn of Africa. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Nebu F. Sfal, co-founder of the Ethiopian American Development Council. Nebu, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Sean. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Jackie. Hello. Good morning. Absolutely. And uh, Nebu, uh, the United States government is continuing its aggression. I don't think there's really any word uh, that would properly describe it uh, against the Horn of Africa region. I think namely Ethiopia and Eritrea to the point where there have even been a couple of pieces of legislation uh, uh, leveling sanctions against those countries. And I'm speaking specifically of uh, H.R. 6600. That's the Ethiopia. Stabilization, Peace and Democracy Act and Senate Bill S.3199, otherwise known as the Ethiopia Peace and Stabilization Act of 2022. Now, these pieces, uh, you know, would compel a number of things from these countries. For instance, the H.R. 6600 uh, basically says that sanctions against Ethiopia will only be lifted uh, once, quote, the government has ceased all offensive military operations associated with the civil war and other conflicts in Ethiopia within 90 days of the bill's enactment. 
the State Department must report to Congress a determination of whether actions in Ethiopia by the armed forces of Ethiopia and Eritrea, the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, and other armed actors constitute genocide, war crimes, or crimes against humanity. Now, this, of course, is pretty serious because genocide itself is a crime against humanity. It's something that should be taken extremely seriously and is not an accusation that should be uh, thrown around wantonly. But, I mean, the reality seems to be, based on what we know to this point, Nebu, that that nothing quite like that is uh, taking place um, within the horn at this moment at least between Ethiopia and Eritrea. And so my first question to you is, what do you think is uh, motivating Washington's desire to basically threaten these countries with this uh, label uh, of genocide? And what do you see as the impacts? Yeah, that's, um, you know, everything you said is right on point. And this uh, genocide designation is is the playbook that we've seen uh, occurring and many other countries, including Libya, where, um, you know, uh, genocide and other uh, so-called human rights violations are used as a pretext for a, a potential intervention, potential military intervention even, and, and sanctions and other ways of forcing uh, governments into basically surrendering the will of the people. And that's exactly what's happening in Ethiopia. You know, the, 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 this um, current conflict in Ethiopia, uh, in the Horn of Africa, with the TPLF, which um, was the former regime of Ethiopia that, that um, we'll believe to have been um, basically uh, the policeman of the United States in the area, was removed from power. And the struggle is uh, really to bring them back into power against the will of the people. Uh, and even though this uh, TPLF force that has been deemed a terrorist by the Ethiopian parliament is getting the support of Western media and unfortunately the United States as well. Um, and and this, this uh, two sanctions, the HR 6600 in the House and the S3199 in the Senate, are basically single-handedly um, uh, punishing uh, both the Ethiopian and the Eritrean governments for protecting the people and themselves and the nations from the TPLF aggression. And and uh, this genocide designation is basically uh, something that has been propagated by the TPLF. Um, you know, it's a loaded word um, that really uh, at times gets uh, the Western attention and, uh, you know, make people feel uh, like, you know, the U.S. should go and intervene. So um, this, the sanctions are really crippling. Um, they also include an arms embargo uh, where the Ethiopia uh, cannot basically protect itself um, and, and the people uh, from hostilities. There's been a lot going on, Sean, um, you know, even in Somalia, right there in the Horn of Africa. A regime change has already been completed for Maggio. The, the former president was um, systematically removed with uh, some questionable parliamentary election. And uh, a U.S. ally has been put in place uh, as the president of Somalia. Basically, it's an attempt to break the tri um, agreement of the three countries uh, to resist and create, uh, you know, a sovereign Horn of Africa. So there's a new president now in Somalia. And what do you know, within uh 
the same week of uh, the new president coming in, the Biden administration announced the uh, return of U.S. troops on boots on the ground in Somalia. So now there's uh, boots on, in, on the ground in Somalia already. Um, there's a new U.S. military base being set up um, in one of the Somali ports. And, uh, you know, these are all things that the, the Farmaja, the previous president, was resisting. And now Ethiopia and Eritrea are being uh, threatened by the sanctions, genocide designations, arms embargo. So there's a whole lot happening. And, and even beyond this, there is yet another bill uh, called H.R. 7311, called Countering Malign Russian Activity in Africa Act that just passed the House and, and uh, you know, could potentially pass the Senate. That basically will punish African countries, um, all African countries, um, for basically not supporting the European civil war, you know, and supporting NATO. So, you know, for um, being neutral, even in the U.N., African countries that remain neutral in the votes against Russia um, and, and, and potentially any African country that could buy cheap oil from Russia, for example, or agricultural equipment. Could, could be sanctioned. So already one-third of the continent is under U.S. sanctions, and now you got three bills pending to add even more sanctions. Now, while all this is going on, uh, Secretary uh, Blinken went to Africa last week, uh, visited uh, South Africa, uh, Rwanda, and uh, I think uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo, and unveil the so-called new Africa strategy, new U.S. Africa strategy, that really sounds good on paper. Um, you know, talks about uh, a new approach, you know, resetting uh, U.S. relations with Africa. You know, it, it kind of outlines a more friendlier relationship, more economic partnership. But, but what you see on the ground and what is being done in Congress with this hostile legislation and everything that is really going on and, and, you know, what we heard from the secretary last week are completely different. Yeah, you know, and this is not the first time that African nations, particularly Eritrea and uh, Ethiopia, have been targeted by sanctions. Before, there were sanctions uh, levied against those countries that uh, were imposed by the United Nations. And, you know, can you tell us a little bit about those sanctions and why the United Nations felt the need to uh, sanction those countries? Yeah, um, the United Nations have, um, you know, went along and sanctioned other countries in Africa. Uh, for example, one uh, good example would be Libya, where the UN went along with the proposal of the US and NATO and went ahead and sanctioned Libya, which led into uh, the invasion and the bombing of Libya. And, you know, uh, and now we know where Libya is. It went from one of the most prosperous. African nations. Uh, now it's a failed nation with a civil war and a slave trade market, and there's terrible things are happening there uh, because they assassinated Gaddafi, and that was supported by the United Nations. You know, and and that's just the, the global politics that you know. There's uh, normally how they do that is they use the, the global mass media to create hysteria about genocide, about you know people being mass killed, weapons of mass destruction, and things like that. But once they get 
um, the critical mass to believe uh, this narrative, it becomes easier to pass this bills and sanctions and ultimately uh, regime changes, you know, even if it means a military intervention. So uh, the media and the propaganda um, really has a lot to do with that. Um, but, you know, what has happened right now in the case of especially the Horn of Africa was Ethiopia and Eritrea. There has been 14 different hearings at the United Nations Security Council, uh, um, you know, proposed by the United States and some Western European countries like Ireland to push the United Nations to pass uh, resolutions and sanctions against Ethiopia and Eritrea. And every single time that they've been vetoed uh, by Russia, China and India. So that is the reason why this the sanctions have not passed within the United Nations. But what's happening now is the U.S. is doing a unilateral, taking unilateral action through uh, this hostile legislation in Congress. Definitely. And uh, Nebu, I appreciate you uh, raising the Countering Malign Russian Activities in Africa Act because, I mean, the fact that this passed, I think, just sort of highlights yet again how the U.S. sees the African continent, the Horn, of course, included as a, a battlefield, really, for its uh, geopolitical struggle against both Russia and China, I would say. And the role of the media that you were just talking about has been, frankly, crucial in uh, uh, how people think and view and analyze what's been happening in the Horn of Africa and in Ethiopia and Eritrea. And even that aspect of things has shown up in some of this legislation in terms of uh, uh, the propaganda, because uh, there's a piece in H.R. 6600 that says, quote, the strategy required by subsection A shall include a plan to implement the strategy, including to combat hate speech and disinformation in Ethiopia, including efforts to coordinate with social media companies to mitigate the effects of social media content generated outside of the U.S., focused on perpetuating the civil war and other conflicts in Ethiopia, including through hate speech and language inciting violence. Well, there's that word again, uh, uh, disinformation, that the U.S. is really quite fond of these days, uh, I think, on a number of levels. But literally, uh, a part of this piece is saying that the U.S. wants to work with social media companies really to ensure that any narrative outside of the U.S. government's uh, narrative will be disallowed. And we've actually already seen this play out, I think, several times in terms of uh, people associated uh, with the No More movement uh, uh, and other uh, platforms like that uh, uh, been taken off Twitter and places like that. And so it's clear, uh, Nebu, that uh, the U.S. government is even is willing to restrict free speech, something that it claims to champion if it means that uh, 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 its desire, basically, to take control over the horn uh, is made manifest. Yeah, 100%. Um, what you just outlined from the bill, it's already happening. I guess uh, making it a law kind of will formalize it. Um, the undersecretary uh, in a testament in Congress a few months back had said that the State Department is working uh, with social media companies like Twitter to regulate. Um, uh, but what is really happening is is voices, pan-African voices that are speaking up the truth and, and countering the mainstream propaganda are being deemed as 
disinformation agents. Um, you know, you mentioned the No More Movement. You know, that was a critical movement last year that really brought um, um, Africans in the diaspora together to really start educating, um, the, you know, uh, the wider American uh, public about what is happening in Africa and basically exposing this lies. So, you know, Twitter started uh, shutting down accounts, the No More account, the uh, Horn of Africa Hub account, and, you know, um, other, um, you know, advocates, including myself, were banned from Twitter uh, without any uh, reason, without any cause or, um, you know, uh, without any violation or even a warning. So, you know, it's really uh, sad. And, and very concerning that in a free country that, you know, you could get shut down for speaking the truth or expressing an opinion that is different than uh, what the government wants people to hear. Absolutely. And I wanted to highlight something that uh, you mentioned a moment ago, uh, Nebu, that, that I think should have a little more focus on it. And that's when you describe this as uh, uh, the pan-African response to all these issues. So we see people uh, in different parts of the African continent outside the Horn region, black Americans here in the U.S. and elsewhere in the African diaspora uh, uh, weighing in and giving uh, uh, their support uh, uh, to what's happening here. And so my question is, is why is it important for there to be a pan-African response to what Washington and other elements are, are trying to do in the Horn of Africa right now? Why should the African world, wherever we find ourselves on this planet, be concerned with what's happening there? Because that is the only way out. That is the only way out of this. Um, Africa has been exploited, its people, its resources, for over 400 years now. Um, whether it's colonialism, slavery, one way or another, we've been exploited for 400 years. Right now, over half of the world's uh, precious minerals, raw material, come from Africa including, you know, one of the very important minerals, cobalt, which is being used for making cell phones and laptops and everything. The world could not function without Africa. So while the wealth of the world is being made on our backs and on our, uh, on our land, we're poor and we're divided and we've been, you know, subjugated. And the reason that they've been able to do that is because we're divided. We don't have a single voice. Uh, they've created all these little conflicts, these tribalisms, uh, these wars, you know, throughout Africa and even here, right? So we have to open our eyes and, and you know, come into terms with the fact that our division is sponsored. Um, our conflicts are sponsored and fueled by forces that want us to continue to be divided. So, and that is the whole thing about the reemergence of the Pan-African movement that we're, you know, pushing is that uh, the people of African descent, wherever we are, it's time to come together because the, the root cause of all our issues are the same wherever you may be. And the only way out is through unity. And through unity, we get strength um, divided. We fall united. We prosper. So I think that our brightest days, Africa's bright days are ahead of it, and, you know, not behind, uh, ahead of it while, um, you know, the, the, the people that are subjugating uh, our continent and people, their brightest days are behind them. 
Um, so it's a new world, a new world order that will require uh, the people of Africa to rise up, uh, to reclaim their wealth, to reclaim their dignity, and to define their own destiny. And, and that requires Pan-Africanism. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Nebu, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about proposed legislation that would declassify the FBI's infamous counterintelligence program. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by John Kiriakou, co-host of Political Misfits, which you can hear from 12 to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on Radio Sputnik. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Sean. Absolutely. And John, uh, recently, Representative Bobby Rush, a Democrat from Illinois, um, proposed the COINTELPRO Full Disclosure Act, which would trigger the declassification, uh, if you will, the declassifying, I should say, of all the files related to the counterintelligence program or COINTELPRO, something that people are likely familiar with as, you know, J. Edgar Hoover, the leader of the FBI at that time, used it to wage just an all-out assault on uh, different radical groups um, across uh, the political spectrum. I mean, even before the FBI was really the FBI, when it was still the Bureau of Investigations, Hoover cut his teeth uh, going after Jamaican-born leader Marcus Garvey, who led the United Negro Improvement Association. And uh, you published a piece about this in a consortium news entitled J. Edgar Hoover's Evil Brainchild. And before we even get too deep into uh, Rush's piece here, I was hoping you could break down some of the history of COINTELPRO, sort of uh, where it comes from and what have been some of the consequences. Yeah, the nature of COINTELPRO uh, really originated in Hoover's obsession with communism, right? Anybody that didn't fit neatly into the the capitalist, uh, patriotic, uh, pro-American narrative was a communist. And so he came up with this idea, COINTELPRO, it stands for Counterintelligence Program, where the FBI would infiltrate, would bug, uh, and in many cases harass uh, any group that fit Hoover's very, very broad description of what a, a communist or communist infiltrated, communist influenced group was, including the Black Panther Party, Martin Luther King, uh, the National Lawyers Guild, uh, women's groups, anti-Vietnam War groups. This thing became a formal FBI program in 1956. It lasted until 1971. So one of the the important things that I want to say about that is we're talking about COINTELPRO spanning both Republican and Democratic presidents. We're talking about, you know, purported progressives like Robert F. Kennedy 
uh, supporting COINTELPRO when he was Attorney General of the United States. So th- this is something that was very much a, a normal part of the Justice Department's war on the American people. That's really what it comes down to. And it got ugly. Um, I, I say in the piece, and I regret that I didn't have more space in which to say it, but part of COINTELPRO that most Americans don't talk about is the assassinations that it carried out. And it focused especially on the Black Panther Party. So, you know, where the FBI is infiltrating peace groups during the Vietnam War or women's groups that supported the Equal Rights Amendment, you know, you shake your head and you tisk about that. But they launched an all-out actual shooting war against the Black Panther Party uh, that resulted in the deaths of a lot of those of those guys. It's something we really don't talk about. Yeah, and as such, what do you see as really the substance of uh, Russia's proposed peace here, which is relevant considering that considering that he's a former Black Panther himself yeah. and was actually close with um, Fred Hampton, who was the head of the Chicago chapter of the Black Panther Party, who was a victim of this assassination program yeah, of COINTELPRO. That's right. I have a, a great deal of respect for Bobby Rush. He's one of those... You, you may be a little bit too young to remember Ron Dellums. Ron Dellums was a congressman from Oakland, California. And Ron Dellums was a guy, he was African-American, but when he talked about peace, it's because he had fought for peace. He was one of the original anti-war protesters in California in the early 1960s before anybody else was protesting the war. He's since passed away. But Bobby Rush is very much in that mold of Ron Dellums. He's really the only the only person, in my view, in the House of Representatives today that would have the guts to sponsor a bill like this. He's not afraid if there's going to be fallout from a bill because he knows that this is the right thing to do. So what this bill would do is three things. It would order the declassification of all documents from 1956 to 1971 having to do with COINTELPRO. Number two, it would actually give the government something of an out if they believe that certain that the release of certain documents would expose sources and methods. Of course, they wouldn't now all these years later. But it creates a mechanism by which the government can object and then it would go the document would go to an independent board for review and if the independent board found that the release of the documents wouldn't harm national security then they're de- declassified as well and then my favorite part of this bill is that it would strip the name of J Edgar Hoover from the FBI's headquarters here in Washington that would be a long time coming yeah, it's been long <laughs> overdue for sure. And, you know, I, I am old enough to remember Ron Bellums, and he is one of my heroes, always has been. He the guy was, was a giant. Uh, just amazing. He was the the radical uh, uh, beginnings of the Congressional Black Caucus. And, you know, the, there's something to be said about where the CBC is now. But, you know, this piece of legislation, John, that... Uh, Bobby Rush is trying to get past is is in in danger of being completely ignored, eclipsed, just you know, it, it, it passed all over by the by the Biden administration in particular. And I don't think we can 
um, uh, overstate how many times the Biden administration in particular have made all of these grand overtures to black voters that they're going to be so much better than Trump and he's going to save us from Trump. And, and here we have a piece of legislation that could, if it doesn't correct the wrongs of the history, because that can't be done, it would bring all of the evils to light, even if people who were responsible for these evils will not be held accountable for them. And the Biden administration is, you know, hemming and hawing and hoping this goes away. I mean, what, what, where is this legislation in, uh, in the process right now? And what is the Biden administration saying or doing about it? Such an important question and great point, Jackie. Uh, when Bobby Rush proposed this legislation in May, I think it was May 4th, the very next day, May 5th, it was, it was referred to a subcommittee, and it has sat there ever since. Now, I've worked on Capitol Hill, many years on Capitol Hill. I was both on the House side and on the Senate side. And I can tell you that when a bill is referred to subcommittee and it just sits there like that, that's it. It's dead. It's done. That's why I wrote this piece. I'm urging people to call their congressman, co-sponsor the legislation, and get it out of uh, out of the subcommittee. One of the things that that changed on on Capitol Hill on the House side in the 1990s was legislation. In order to make it to the floor for a vote, would have to go through the Rules Committee. So, if you were a member of the Rules Committee, you were one of the kingmakers in the House. You were one of the most powerful, most important members of the House. That changed with Newt Gingrich. So what what he did is he stripped the rules committee of all of its authority and all legislation had to go through the office of the speaker so if if the speaker didn't want something to make it to the floor of the house for a vote he would just kill it well nancy pelosi has kept that policy and so while there's still a rules committee and it still meets, it doesn't have the authority anymore to bring legislation up for a vote. This is all dependent now on Nancy Pelosi. And I point, I point out in the piece, too, that there is no concurrent legislation on the Senate side. Not a single one of the 100 senators has thought it appropriate to, to simultaneously sponsor legislation in the Senate. So even if this does pass the House, then what? There's no vote in the Senate, and then it just dies a quiet death. So this is something that I think is so important that it, it, it mandates us reaching out to our elected officials. The American people deserve access to this information. Yeah, without question. And I wanted to pick up on what I felt was also an interesting point in um, this uh, declassifying COINTELPRO piece and in the removing of Hoover's name off the building. Because, you know, people may not be aware that when Hoover's name was first put on the FBI building, that was not uh, popular across the oh, board. Oh, no, you're exactly right. <laughs> you it know? was not popular. Yeah. There, was, there was a move at the time to call it the Robert F. Kennedy building. Mm. And instead they made it the, the J. Edgar Hoover building. But you're right. Not everybody liked that. You know, J. Edgar Hoover's buried right over here in southeast Washington in Congressional Cemetery. Oh, really? Uh-huh. And uh, uh, it, it's funny that they put a fence up around his grave because people were defacing it. And um, then after they finished putting the fence, a, a group of retired FBI agents put a, a bench there so that people can go and sit and show their respect and, you know, ponder life's meaning or whatever. It's outrageous to me. To me, this guy's a, a criminal 
He's he's somebody that we should be teaching our children in school what not to do when you grow up, that this is not how you treat your fellow citizens. And instead, he's being honored, whether it's, you know, from his career at the FBI headquarters or in death at Congressional Cemetery. It's outrageous. I, I say in the piece, too, that, um, you know, one of the most outrageous things he did, he had such an irrational obsession with Martin Luther King. Even even now, with 50 years of history, we have trouble understanding this obsession. He believed that King was a was a communist, which, of course, he wasn't. And um, and even if he had been, who cares? Right. But anyway, he believed that King was a, a communist and um uh, Hoover was just pushed over the edge when Martin Luther King finally won the Nobel Peace Prize, right? That was just too much for him to handle. And so he, he had his agents send uh, King a letter demanding that he commit suicide. And they said they had these tapes of uh, Martin Luther King in hotels with different women, uh, tapes of him having sex with these women. And unless he killed himself, they were going to release these tapes to the media. Well, King just ignored this stupid uh, uh, letter. And so Hoover did release the tapes to Newsweek and to Newsday magazine. I'm sorry, Newsday newspaper on Long Island. Um, and they didn't care. Sorry. And they didn't care. So uh, they, they just continued to target him by bugging his home, by opening his mail, by bugging the hotel rooms that he stayed in. They, they targeted agents and access agents to influence his, his inner circle, in some cases to penetrate his inner circle, all with an eye toward getting him to kill himself. And then when he was assassinated in 1968, as crazy as this sounds, they kept up the campaign against his memory. You know, the guy's dead. And the FBI is urging uh, governmental bodies not to honor him by naming streets after him or buildings after him. They actively opposed the Martin Luther King uh, holiday on his birthday. It's crazy that even in death, they just wouldn't let the poor man rest. And it was all part of COINTELPRO. Yeah, that's why it always kind of tickles me in in a really ironic and horrible way. Every year when the FBI tweets out, you know, we honor Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. Ridiculous. <laughs> like, no, you don't. No, no, but, you don't. But, you know, as much as we thought we knew about COINTELPRO, I think I'm most shocked that I didn't know that all of the files have not been declassified. Now, I thought right. that everything had been released by those activists who were actually going into a building to find draft cards to burn them. <laughs> and they they stumble <laughs> upon this massive government uh, secret surveillance program of Americans. And they're like, this is way worse than, oh my God. you know. So, so, I mean, just how much more of COINTELPRO has not been released. Yeah, good question. Do we really understand like the magnitude of how deep and how wide this program really was? We we don't know. 
Um, first, let's talk about the burglary. I think this is absolutely wonderful. So this group of progressive activists broke into an FBI field office in Media, Pennsylvania, like you say, looking for draft cards that they could burn. Kind of a fun, cool little operation. When they got in there, um, they found thousands of pages of documents related to COINTELPRO. They had never heard of COINTELPRO. Nobody had. It was secret. And so they stole these thousands of pages of documents. They took them to, to the farm of one of the burglars, and they made copies one page at a time. I mean, imagine what copy machines were like in, in the 1960s, right? They were mimeograph machines, essentially. So one page at a time, they made these copies, and then they offered them up to the Washington Post and the New York Times and all these different papers. Nobody wanted to touch them. So little by little, some of these documents got out. The, the FBI freaked out. Every FBI agent in America was mandated with hunting down these burglars. None of them were ever caught. And there's an absolutely wonderful book called The Burglary by Betty Metzger. Uh, she was a longtime Washington Post reporter. She published this book in, it was like 2014 or 2012, and it's being made into a movie. But it really lays it out. One of the bottom lines in this thing is that there are probably millions of pages of documents that have never been released. Millions of pages. What the burglars did was amazing, and it was a public service, but they only got what few files happened to be in this little teeny tiny two-man FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania. Just imagine what's still sitting in files in FBI headquarters. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, talking about like Hoover's obsession with King, I mean, to me, this just points to the historic connection between anti-communism and racism. And oh, yeah. in, in your piece, you quote uh, FBI special agent William Sullivan, which will be a familiar name to people who you know studied the history of the FBI, who wrote to Hoover about King saying, quote, in light of King's powerful demagogic speech, it's talking about the I have a dream speech. We must mark him now, if we have not done so before, as the most dangerous Negro of the future in this nation from the standpoint of communism, the Negro, and national security. So to describe the I have a dream speech <laughs> as demagogic. Right. Now, mind you, there are a lot of us that don't care for the I have a dream speech because it doesn't contain the kind of, you know, radical critical analysis that King would have and, you know, say the why I'm opposed to the war in Vietnam and, you know, where do we go from here speeches later. But I think that that tells you a lot just about how they were even thinking about him. And so my last question to you, John, is what do you see as the legacy of Pro, and how that illegal, deadly operation continues to impact the American people today? Wow. Yes. Pro is the FBI. Pro is J. Edgar Hoover. And we can only make a historic assessment or historical assessment of the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover with access to these documents. I've said many, many times about the CIA's torture program, and it, it bears repeating in this context. The American people own this information, and they have the right to know what their government was doing in their name. There's also a law in this country that makes it a felony to classify information that is a crime, 
right? These were crimes that were committed against American citizens by the FBI. By law, they can't be classified. And so what Bobby Rush's bill would do is to set the record right. We just need to get this thing out of subcommittee and get it onto the floor for a vote. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, John, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Monday, August 15th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in By Any Means Necessary. You can also listen to us on sputnik.mave.digital. That's M-A-V-E. You can listen to us live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time each weekday. And we are streaming live for your viewing pleasure on Rumble right now. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do when we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Ted Roll, award-winning editorial cartoonist and columnist and author of the graphic novel, The Stringer. Ted, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Ted, uh, you actually uh, recently spent two weeks Inside Russia, I'm sure that uh, Vladimir Putin was your personal tour guide. At least, you know, this is what people think when you uh, appear on on Russian media. And you had some uh, very interesting observations there that I think run quite contrary to what we're being told in the West. And I think that there are some implications in that, that uh, 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 as it regards the, the ongoing war in Ukraine. And uh, you published a piece about it on your site. Raw.com entitled In Actual Russia, No Signs of Sanctions. So to begin, I was hoping you could tell us about uh, your time inside Russia, uh, Ted. Uh, what did you see? What did you not see? And how much did it reflect uh, what we're told about what happens in Russia over here? 
Well, Sean, I mean, I was uh, expecting to see very dramatic economic uh, effects from the sanctions. You know, I mean, obviously, as you and everyone listening knows, uh, we've been told that the uh, the sanctions have been brutal, and that's not to say that they haven't been, but also that there are widespread shortages of consumer goods in Russia, uh, that prices are skyrocketing, the economy is grinding to a halt, uh, businesses are closing, unemployment is rising, you know, basically a, an image of economic freefall and catastrophe. Frankly, I would not have been surprised if I had seen that, uh, based on the coverage that we've uh, we've re- we've had, and you know, based on all the implications of how brutal these sanctions have been. And this is not to say that uh, you know I, I, I'm in favor of the sanctions. But I think their sanctions never work. I think they're a terrible idea. Uh, they should just not even be permitted under international law. But uh, the fact is, I was shocked, really surprised. And just how things could not have possibly been more 180 degrees diametrically opposed to the narrative that we're hearing on Western media outlets. I mean, I expected some spin, but it's ridiculous. I mean, the fact is that, uh, you know, I was in Moscow and St. Petersburg, which are Russia's two biggest cities. The streets were packed. The stores were packed. Uh, there were no empty storefronts except uh, there were some closed American chain businesses like Starbucks coffee, uh, uh, you know, McDonald's and things like that. Uh, but, you know, it's not like if you needed a cup of coffee in Moscow or St. Petersburg, you'd have any trouble finding one. There are, it's, you know, it's basically Europe. There are cafes locally owned all over the place and some chains and some micro chains uh, that are Russian and from other companies. Uh, there's, uh, you know, Burger King is all over the place and going strong. Uh, there's, uh, you know, and of course, there's tons and tons of restaurants of every type, every conceivable type. I mean, the, I went to, in St. Petersburg, there was a mall called uh, the Galleria across the, the, the street from my hotel. The place was packed. I mean, if you were uh, an Amer- if you were in the United States, you would assume it was Christmas shopping season. You had to wait to 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 check things out. The stores are. I mean, you know. I mean, it, it was the streets are packed. The metros are packed. Everything's booming. There's there's construction going on. Um, you know, it's not at all like here in New York where I live, where there's still uh, businesses that are uh, reeling from COVID, where there's rats running in the streets. Because there's been uh, things, the city is so disorganized, uh, where there's violent crime and homelessness readily apparent. I mean, you know, things, anybody who just beamed into one of those two Russian cities at, and had been to, say, LA or New York or Washington or Boston uh, or Chicago would be like, would clearly say, well, from all practical signs, Russia's economy is going gangbusters compared to the, to the United States. And so it's, the thing is, I was just gobsmacked at just how there was no relationship between reality at all. I wrote about this in my syndicated column two, two weeks in a row, and I've, I've talked about it on social media, but, and I expected you know, people to pick up on it, but there is no interest at all in the truth. I mean, the, don't disturb the narrative. I mean, this is, you know, the, 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 story, the, official, the story is the official story, 
and we will not depart from that, that lie. But it's absurd. Yeah, Ted, and in your column, you did write about the fact that anyone who had access to a map could see that the chances of Ukraine prevailing against Russia were slim to none. Now, I think that that speaks, we could say a lot about, you know, the American education system and and what we actually do with these little computers we have in our hands called our, called our smartphones because nobody's actually looking at a map on our phones. We're looking at all kinds of other things. But but if why do you make that argument that if anybody who just looked at a map could automatically see that Ukraine could not win this war? And and what was like the dire thing that would have had to have happened for them to have actually prevailed? Well, um, the... You know, I mean, Ukraine is a vast country, but it is insignificant compared to the size of Russia. I mean, I don't think many Americans really focus on life outside their own country. I think many Americans don't even really understand the geography or, you know, the layout of their own country, much less, uh, you know, countries on the other side of the of the planet. But Russia has 11 time zones. It's the biggest country on the planet by far. It goes and it goes and it goes and it goes, and it just doesn't stop. And, you know, I mean, that's why the Germans and the French and Napoleon were unable to conquer it, even when the Russians were, you know, were, were, were at a weak point. They had so much territory to retreat into that they could do that and that they could use that and then come back later and, and slaughter their enemies. But in this case, I mean, the only way, I mean— the only way that Russia, that the, that Ukraine could ever have, I don't know if we could say prevailed, but stood a chance against Russia would have been in the impossible, insane uh, case of the United States deciding to use or give nuclear weapons to Ukraine or use nuclear weapons on their behalf. I mean, and that obviously would be World War Three, and you know we wouldn't be here anymore. We wouldn't. Be having this conversation, nobody would be having any conversations because it would be the end of the world. And so, you know, even the American, uh, you know, despots who run our government are not that crazy, and they didn't do that. So, given the fact that they were not willing to go there, uh, you know, then they were trying to fight to the last Ukrainian. I mean, that definitely has been their approach. And you know, this is about propping up the arms business. It's about uh, political intrigue. It's about trying to weaken Russia. But it's not, a you know, this is like the, uh, the, the, the think tank, which is kind of conservative, called Stratfor, has said for years that America's primary foreign policy objective is to disrupt, not defeat, regional adversaries. Russia is a regional adversary in Europe and Asia. So the U.S. just basically messes with them and tries to trip them and screw them up, but they know they can't beat them. So it's more just about, like, you know, sabotaging them and giving them a hard time. Um, and this, Ukraine is all about that. I mean, they're being suckered by the U.S. Uh, this is a, a fight that they picked with the, 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 you know, with the encouragement of the U.S. against Russia uh, and, and in, you know, with getting trying to get into bed with NATO it was an act of insanity all along, going back to 2014 and, and made on. 
I mean, and it's, you know, it's, it's tragic for everyone involved. Yeah. And, you know, Ted, almost from the beginning here on the show, we were pointing out about how <clears throat> the reality of what's happening in uh, the war in Ukraine, uh, of course, between Ukraine and Russia is just simply uh, not reflected in what we see in the mainstream media platforms. And it seems like just a lot of the things that uh, the U.S. government has tried to get over in a number of ways as it pertains to this conflict is just not working. I mean, the tens of billions of dollars in aid uh, uh, to the extent that it was even, you know, received and didn't uh, end up on, you know, the the black market or or the dark web or something uh, that hasn't worked. Uh, This celebritizing of uh, of Volodymyr Zelensky and now even his wife in the pages of Vogue, uh, that really hasn't worked. And, you know, even this narrative around the, the supposed military victory of Ukraine seems to be uh, uh, faltering more and more and more. And so while I think that the U.S. has successfully demonized uh, Russia and Vladimir Putin in the minds of the American people, I mean, it seems to me that the sympathy uh, towards this conflict within the U.S. is waning, not the least of which because of the issue of aid uh, that I was mentioning earlier with all of this money going over there while uh, conditions continue to worsen here. So that being the case, why is it so important for this government and these corporate media platforms that serve as their bullhorn? Why is it important for them to continue to try to, to, to hammer this narrative even as reality begins to creep in? Well, that's the part that's puzzling to me because uh, even when you engage in propaganda as a media outlet, you're, you know, the only real currency a, media, a news media organization has with its readers is credibility. I mean, in the same way that, you know, if when you when you go to uh, the drugstore, you assume that, you know, none of the drugs, none of the pills you buy have been tampered with. And if that turns out not to be the case, uh, you know, you have a major crisis on your hands. Uh, you know, when someone like me goes to Russia and discovers that we're being sold a line of bill, uh, uh, you know, a, a bill of goods. Um, and I come back and tell people, uh, and some of them believe me, not all of them, some of them, um, you know, that's going to happen over and over again. And it becomes, uh, you know, just, it, it's, it's undermining their own brand and their own ability to spread, you know, their message, whether, the message is, is true or false. I mean, you kind of just can't go too far. And I think they are going too far. I mean, it's it works with some people. I mean, I have friends who were telling who were worried sick that I was going to be physically assaulted by Russian people as soon as they learned I was American. Uh, nothing could have been further from the truth. Uh, people were lovely. As soon as uh, people heard me speaking English, they were like, oh, my God, where are you from? And I told them, they were like, oh, my God, it's so great you're here. We thought you guys you know, didn't care about us or you didn't want to come here anymore. And so, yeah, great. We haven't seen you guys since before COVID. You know, I mean, that's the reality of it. Reality gets out. I mean, it, the, you know, in the age of an interconnected world with the Internet and every, and every you know, social media and everything else, they just – it seems like the U.S. is trying to build – a new like iron curtain and keep Russia behind it. They're, they don't even want to let, uh, you know, there's, there's certain countries like Estonia that are proposing that Russian citizens not be allowed to visit Europe on vacation uh, to on tourist visas. Um, those things are, you know, it, it's just not going to work. These, these are efforts that are doomed to failure. 
Uh, as human beings, we've never been more connected. We're getting more connected all every day. So I don't, I mean, I think they basically are rolling like it's still 1999, but it's not, you know, I mean, it's, it's a different world now. And, and, and these lies just, you know, they can't hold, they are going to come out. And, you know, the other side of that, you know, with the people in Russia happy to see an American and, and you know, saying that I thought you guys had forgotten about us. I, th- I think that's pretty cool um, that that they would have that sentiment. And there is not the wholesale antagonism toward Americans that Americans have fomented toward Russians and most of us have never met one. Most of us have never met a Russian person. So, I mean, what do you think the the response of the Russian people that you met and what you saw in Russia not being received in this country as anything that, you know, most people um, want to know about? What do you think that says about us here, uh, Ted? Well, I'm glad you asked that question, Jackie. I mean, I think Americans really love to wallow in psychological projection. I mean, you know, this is one of the only countries in the world where, uh, you know, if you're, for example, from, uh, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia, people will think that you're somehow in agreement with the policies of Mohammed bin Salman, uh, when that might very well not be the case. In other countries, nobody assumes that you are a representative of the government. They just assume you're a person. And um, I think that's unfortunately something that Americans don't do uh, when they meet, I mean, other people, including including Russians, um, as you say, it doesn't happen very much. I mean, American popular culture, it, it bears, uh, you know, noting has been extremely Russophobic. I mean, how many action movies have Russian mafia supervillains uh, who are, in, you know, insane psychopaths that have to be fought by a noble American who might be an employee of the CIA or the FBI. Uh, there's countless ones. Um, you know, the, the Russian villain is a trope in, uh, in cinema. And so, um, you know, obviously reality is nothing like that at all. And I mean, <laughs> they're, they're incredibly lovely, great, fun, cool people to hang out with. So, um, you know, it's, it's unfortunately, you know, it's, it's increasingly challenging to go and it's always been expensive and now it's more expensive, but it's, you know, for people who can afford it and can make it happen, uh, you know, they should, because there's nothing beats seeing things for yourself and nothing beats the human interaction with other people. Absolutely. And, you know, what you're speaking to, Ted, is something fundamental and really quite important. I mean, it's just this person to person um, uh, communication and and experience, which can really shift um, people's uh, uh, estimation and view of things, I think, in a number of ways. And I think you're right, because, see, you know, the people in the U.S., as we often say, are the most propagandized people in the world. And a part of that is conflating a vilified leader, in this case, Vladimir Putin, with the whole of the people of the nation, which which is incredible, because as you note correctly, uh, Russia is this gargantuan country that manages to sit both in the east and the west 
And yet uh, the view that Americans take of that country and all its diversity is all boiled down to uh, not only just to one individual, but a skewed image of even that individual. But this is not something that uh, happens in other countries, uh, as you note. And so, you know, I mean, the idea that you would get beat up simply for being American, I mean, it is patently absurd. Although, I mean, you know, if we take a look at the history of U.S. Uh, interference in Russia, even from the times of the fall of the Soviet Union, I mean, they may have been justified. But, you know, uh, uh, even still, I mean, uh, that is precisely what is being kept from us in the narratives that we get from this government and these uh, 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 corporate-owned media platforms. Uh, but in truth, you know, uh, humanity, I think, is is uh, truly a transcendent sort of thing, brings about a very deep kind of understanding. And that's why building, I think, a real solidarity and making a deep study of these countries can go a long way of undoing a lot of the lies and misrepresentations that we've been told. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour. On that note, here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., we'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines now open to 02521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Ted Rawl. And Ted, you know, elsewhere in Europe, speaking of Russia, there appears to be a growing call for a ban on visas for people from Russia. Uh, what What is all of this uh, about and what is uh, motivating this call? Well, apparently the uh, people of certain European countries like Estonia seem to believe that it's an amazing uh, privilege, as they say, to be allowed to visit Europe and that, uh, you know, it'll just cr- uh, crush Russians uh, Russians uh, in some way to not be able to travel to Europe anymore. I do have news for them. Uh, as much as I do love traveling to Europe, and I do, um, there is uh, there are many other uh, great vacation destinations all over the world and, uh, you know, you can do without Europe and, uh, you know, you'd never get to see everything else. So, um, but, yeah, no, I mean, I think, it, again, it, it comes down to this uh, sanctions mentality. I mean, the, the whole sanctions assumption is, obviously, as you well know, Sean, is that, uh, you know, if uh, you make life miserable for the citizens of a country, that they will uh, not hold the people... They will not hold you responsible for making them miserable. They will hold the uh, they will hold uh, their own government responsible because, as your point, trying to make the argument, it's their govern it's their leaders' actions that are causing it, and therefore, uh, you know, you should overthrow your government, and then they will, uh, you know, and then and, and then the, the the sanctions will go away. Um, of course, uh, that's not always really true. You know, what it reminds me of is in school, uh, when some teachers have a class where one or two students misbehaves, but the teacher isn't, uh, isn't, you know, can't really suss out exactly, 
you know, who's passing notes or who's making funny sounds uh, when, you know, the teacher turns to his or her back. So they, in frustration, they punish the entire class. Uh, never mind that, you know, group punishment is a violation of the Geneva Conventions. Um, but they punish the entire class and they say, you know, like, well, tell, you know, everybody's going to, you know, not get to go to recess today unless you tell, you know, someone step, these people step, step forward or someone rats them out. Um, that's not, not only is that not, I think, immor- I mean, it's immoral, but on top of that, I don't think it's very effective. I mean, I remember as a student when that would happen, I didn't, you know, I suddenly pivoted from thinking that my classmates were jerks uh, into thinking that the teacher was a jerk. And uh, similarly, you know, if you look at the citizens of Cuba who've been subject to U.S. sanctions for more than half a century, because simply because the U.S. doesn't think that Cuba should have a socialist government and would rather that it have a, uh, a, a form of gangster capitalism like we have, then, uh, you know, the Cuban people, even those who don't like uh, the you know Fidel Castro or his successor, um, you know the Cuban people don't look at uh, don't say okay well because of the U.S. blockade we should overthrow our government. They think the U.S. are mean and they're jerks and they're hurting us. Similarly, I don't think anyone in Russia who wants to go on a trip to uh, Estonia is going to say. Well, uh, you know, it's it. We should really. This is all Putin's fault. We should be mad at Putin. It's not Putin who's doing this. Uh, Putin doesn't want this. Putin is against this. Uh, this is, you know, if if they go ahead and do it, it would be the EU. Now that said, I don't think uh, there's really any chance that these that these visa blocks will go through because all 27 member states of the EU have to unanimously agree to something like that. And Germany, which is basically the boss of the EU, has already said there's no way they would vote, they would support this. But even the, you know, even the sense that like we could, you know, that that this is sort of this mentality that they can, you know, somehow out of frustration they can punish the Russian people for, uh, you know, for for what they for the Russian government's decision to engage uh, in the in the military action in Ukraine. It's just. You know, it, it's, it just betrays a complete lack of understanding of how sanctions have never worked and never will work. And, you know, Ted, I think that I seem to recall, uh, you know, national hero Volodymyr Zelensky uh, commenting on doing this exact thing, saying that, you know, individual Russian people should uh, not be allowed to travel. You know, they should be um, they should feel the pain of of the responsibility of their country and that kind of thing. And and as you said, German uh, Chancellor Olaf Scholz said that a blanket ban on visas for Russians was hard to imagine. Do you think this is another indication that the cracks in the foundation of the facade of what really was done in Ukraine, who's really you know, responsible for it, what it's really about, do you think this is another indication that the cracks in the foundation of that, that lie of Ukraine is, is, uh, are, are deepening? I do. Um, you know, I, I don't, I think there's kind of a number of, there's several factions here uh, among the ruling classes of the European Union uh, and the West in general. I mean, I think some of it is just fatigue, uh, you know, that this 
this war has now been, you know, I mean, not by historical standards, but it's been dragging on by contemporary standards. You know, people have the attention span of a, of a, you know, of a small insect. So they, you know, it's like, wow, it's already, it's been so long, you know, it's been months. And, uh, and obviously, you know, Ukraine's not making any progress far from it. Um, and it doesn't seem likely that they will. I think there's also, you know, some people who probably never were that enthusiastic about supporting Ukraine to this extent or to any extent from the very beginning and sort of, you know, sort of saw the truth behind it, but kind of had to shut up and go along with uh, the louder voices within the coalition. And, uh, you know, and I think there's just people who kind of uh, also are probably getting pretty annoyed at the Ukrainians and their hysteria as they constantly demand things that are really unrealistic, like medium-range missiles that can strike deep within Russia. Uh, you know, more it's always more weapons, more weapons. It's like, well, how about if you guys stop selling the, you know, the, the Javelin missile systems that we've already given you on the dark web? Uh, how, about, how about that? Maybe, maybe use those. Um, so I think there's a lot of people who are... Um, I think there's. I think these cracks are appearing. I mean, I, I think the Zelensky and his ilk are getting annoying to them, and they're sort of like thinking, "Okay, God, you know, we're somehow we're stuck with this clown. What do we do now?" And um, and and they're looking for an exit strategy. And I think what will happen is at some point, um, Zelensky or the Ukrainians will do something really stupid, and that will give them political cover to start to walk this back. Yeah, and you know, another thing about, it's another consequence, I think, <clears throat> of the way that uh, the American consciousness kind of collapses the, the identity of an entire uh, uh, country in terms of how we're indoctrinated to do so. Another thing that I think Americans don't realize, Ted, is like the broad support that Vladimir Putin has uh, amongst the people of Russia. Now, of course, like any country, there's a diversity of political opinions. People think different ways about different things. Certainly, Putin has his uh, internal critics. I mean, there, there are differences of opinion even within the Putin government. Um, but this is not something that we're really uh, uh, made aware of. And what we get here in the U.S. and the West is uh, this kind of uh, constant uh, questioning of the you know validity of election which I think coming from the U.S. is pretty laughable. You, you know what I mean? And so it just seems like it's a kind of part and parcel of a, a really this whole deal. And so it, it becomes useful then in a, a moment like this where the U.S. government is trying to instigate an open conflict with Russia through Ukraine. And so it's helpful then if the people are sort of primed uh, mentally, and, and I would say in this case, even emotionally, um, to think about that leadership in a particular way. And I think that the, the sort of uh, same could be said for Zelensky, who, you know, we noted earlier has been really, I mean, frankly, exalted uh, to the American people. And, and I don't know how effective that's been. But then what we don't hear is about him banning basically all opposition parties, all of the shakeups that are happening within uh, uh, the Zelensky government. You know, nothing at all that transgresses or problematizes um, this this image that we've been fed here is is allowed. I mean, it, it's completely uh, verbose. And what I'm really wondering, Ted, and this is maybe a philosophical question and something that I ponder a lot in terms of there has to be 
a political consequence for all of this, for the, these constant misrepresentations and false narratives that we get from these corporate media platforms and from this government, and particularly seeing about uh, how things are trending in the U.S. at this moment with this rot, as we call it, that continues to set in. I mean, it seems that the U.S. sort of only hastens the decline that it seems to be trying to prevent by engaging in these kinds of things. You know what I mean? Oh, I agree, Sean. I mean, I think there's all sorts of consequences to this sort of, like, um, you know, this this sort of massive demonization that's baseless. You know, I mean, I, I told you know my best friend. We were, he was asking me about media access. He goes, "Well, you know, I mean, Russia is a totalitarian dictatorship. There's no." There's no opposition. There's no media. I'm like, dude, that's just not even true. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, I saw opposition newspapers on sale, uh, you know, in, in St. Petersburg. Um, you know, there was there's a vibrant press. There's a, there's lots of criticism of the government, like openly printed. I didn't see any newspaper vendors, you know, arrested or, or carted away. Um, there's, uh, you know, you can look on, in my, on my hotel television, there's CNN International, there's CNBC, there's the BBC, all with anti-Putin, uh, pro-Ukraine, pro-Zelensky uh, coverage, you know, piped right into, you know, Russian hotel. And, you know, meanwhile, you know, can you get RT on your uh, American TV? Uh, you know, no, you can't. Um, it was amazing. My RT app, you know, when I was in Turkey was working <laughs> on my way back. I was like, that's so great. You know, it hasn't updated the entire time I was in the U.S. Um, I mean, you know, the, the Ukraine has, as you pointed out, literally no opposition parties are allowed anymore. Uh, there's no opposition media anymore. None. They've all been completely shut down by the Zelensky government. There's no, uh, you know, that's just not true in Russia. It's, um, you know, it's, it's very, it's very vibrant. Um, you know, it's, it's, but, you know, you come back and you tell Americans that they kind of, even though you yourself have been there and they themselves have not been there, they've been so propagandized, as you point out, that they don't even believe it. But in terms of, you know, consequences, you know, there's also going to be shifts in the paradigm. And at some point, you know, the next time the U.S. gets involved in its next war of, of direct aggression, you know, which is only has to be a matter of, you know, of not very much time, unfortunately, uh, you know, there's going to be calls at some point like, well, maybe we should impose sanctions on the U.S. Maybe Americans should be held accountable for the actions of their government since they live in such a robust democracy, you know, then, you know, how come we're not being held accountable for the abuses at Abu Ghraib and the torture at Guantanamo? Or, uh, you know, why were we not held accountable for the invasions and occupations of Iraq and Afghanistan? Why are we not being held accountable for our role in the proxy war in Yemen? Um, you know, I mean, it goes on and on and on. I, I you know, I, I, I do think the consequences are unknowable, but I don't think it's likely that there that there will be no consequences because it just goes too far. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, relatedly, Ted, <clears throat> given how things are are trending in Ukraine and the fact that the leadership in Washington has to be uh, aware of uh, what's really happening, despite what they tell the rest of us. I, I wonder if you see this as um, having an impact 
on uh, recent actions from U.S. government officials as it pertains to Taiwan. Uh, of course, I'm, I'm referencing specifically uh, Nancy Pelosi's recent visit. I mean, despite the uh, constant warnings um, and condemnation from the Chinese government, but now more U.S. lawmakers are, are planning to uh, uh, take a trip. I mean, this next one that's being reported on will be a five-member delegation led by Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts, a Democrat, which will also meet with uh, President Tsai Ing-wen of uh, uh, Taiwan and other officials. So we've been commenting on the show, and we're certainly not alone in it, that what the U.S. seems to be ramping up to in Taiwan really feels like a parallel to what we saw in the lead up to Ukraine. So, I mean, do you think that Washington may be uh, uh, sort of preparing to pivot to a Ukraine type situation in Taiwan uh, with China, which also has some some very deeply uh, uh, some very uh, deep and dangerous implications as uh, the military campaign in Ukraine is just not panning out uh, the way that they wanted? Well, they're definitely flirting with it. I mean, they're trying it. You know, they're like the expression says, they're raising the flag to see if anyone salutes. Um, you know, the question is, will the Taiwanese fall for it? I mean, you know, I think unlike the Ukrainians, uh, particularly after 2014, um, I think the Taiwanese, uh, I, I think it's less likely to work there because the Taiwanese kind of have uh, some some historical awareness of having been used and manipulated and abused by the United States uh, ever since 1949. I mean, you know, they, they had an independent democratic state after World War II, and then the U.S. Overthrew, helped overthrow it in 1949 and brought Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists over the Taiwan Strait by boat and installed the KMT dictatorial regime of Chiang Kai-shek uh, which you know led to the massacre of Taiwanese intellectuals uh, and the installation of this brutal U.S.-backed dictatorship for years. And even that dictatorship, even though it was very uh, closely aligned with the U.S., you know Richard Nixon and Jimmy Carter threw them over the bus and uh, threw them out, uh, you know, under the bus, not over the bus, and, uh, and and decided to recognize the People's Republic of China instead of the ROC on Taiwan in the 70s. And they, you know, they ever since they kind of know that the U.S. is playing games with them. You know, they, the U.S. sells them tons of weapons, but the Taiwanese have always complained that the weapons that we sell them are inferior, overpriced, uh, would never be able to withstand a Chinese attack. Again, you know, if we get back to the map metaphor, the map metaphor when you compare Taiwan and China is even, you know, more. We're not even talking about, you know, David and Goliath. Uh, you're talking Mouse and Goliath, uh, given the size of the relative size of Taiwan. Um, you know, China wants to invade Taiwan. It it can. I mean, it's not that it wouldn't be ugly, but it would prevail, obviously. And the Taiwanese know that. So, um, you know, the the thing is, even though the DPP government, the so-called Green Party, is nominally pro-independence, and that was always their shtick for years while they were the opposition party from the KMT, the truth is uh, they're not going to declare independence anytime soon. And, you know, a few visits by some uh, politically opportunistic congressman from the United States, I don't think is likely to turn an otherwise sane and rational people into a bunch of, of fools who are willing to, uh, you know, not recognize, you know, who and what their neighbor is. 
definitely. Well, we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 0252-11320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Ted Rawl is here. And Ted, uh, we continue to see the fallout from the recent raid of the FBI on uh, Donald Trump's uh, Mar-a-Lago estate. I'm looking at a piece uh, that was published in Reuters just yesterday with the uh, FBI and U.S. Department of Homeland Security, that's DHS, uh, saying that they've gotten an increase in threats uh, since this search was conducted, which I think is no big surprise given that, you know, Trump supporters have, you know, uh, uh, sort of declared war on the FBI, and which has been kind of uh, funny to see. But be that as it may, I'm just sort of generally curious what you're making of uh, this whole thing and what you think is motivating it and what some of the ripple effects may be. You know, I think what's going on here is, I hate to say it, what, you know, what the Republicans are saying, I think is basically right. Uh, they're trying to jack up Donald Trump just about, you know, going about a year before the beginning of the presidential campaign. He's apparently the Republican front runner at this point. Uh, I think he's you know way ahead of uh, second place Ron DeSantis of Florida. Uh, I, I, the, I think the system has been politicized. And, you know, what you're it's kind of like, look, if they want to go after him and, and really kneecap him, they should do it over, you know, strategically, the smart move would be to try to nail him on January 6th and find some kind of smoking gun that shows that he, he was part of a conspiracy to, uh, you know, to plan and organize uh, that, that riot in the Capitol. Uh, and if they, got, if they did that, I think they, they'd have something politically and legally that might, you know, that, that, might, that might get some attention. It might bring an end to his political ambitions. It might uh, pave the way for a, an easier campaign for whoever the Democratic nominee is going to be. Uh, and obviously also the midterms are coming up. But, I, you know, this is, this is a, you know, when people really focus on it, what we're really ultimately talking about, that the optics aren't great. And I don't think the optics are very different from the reality in this case. You're talking about 15 bankers boxes worth of, of documents, some of which were classified. But, you know, from a factual standpoint, a presidential administration generates tens of thousands of boxes uh, and not to mention uh, you know, the equivalent of that amount of data in digital form that's supposed to be turned over every four or eight years over to the National Archives. And I know because I'm a history major in college and I, I've done research at the National Archives and the amount of paperwork generated by any presidential administration is like it's like the last scene of Indiana Jones, you know, in the in the big warehouse. It's crazy. You can't even like it. You know, it boggles the imagination. So they have all this stuff. And in terms of stuff being classified, 
a lot of stuff really is not classified or declassified really at any given time until someone asks to see it. Then when some researcher or someone, a government official wants to see it, a, an agent of the CIA or uh, some other, but usually it's the CIA, they analyze the data, the, the, the document in question, and then they decide to give it its classification. Um, and that's what determines. And the president has blank, blanket declassification, um, you know, powers. I mean, the, pre- the president can literally, I mean, just because it's not really codified, the president can literally sort of abracadabra stuff from being classified to declassified just like that. And it doesn't have to be, you know, a formal memo or anything. I mean, this is all a long-winded way of saying that uh, not only do they not have Trump dead to rights here, I don't think they have any way to have Trump dead to rights. And this whole thing is a gift to the Republicans. I mean, it, look, it's, it's really bad optics. Um, there's Max Boot, uh, you know, talking in today's Washington Post, you know, trying to sort of justify uh, the he's an anti-Trump Republican trying to justify the raid and say, well, you know, Trump says this has never happened to any other Republican. However, you know, he may have misused, de- you know, classified information. I'm, I'm sorry, but that's not a response to that. It's true what Trump said. It is, you know, this has never happened to any other former president, period. Uh, you know, they didn't do this to Nixon. They didn't do it to any, they didn't do it to Reagan. I mean, they just haven't done done this before. So. Uh, you know, it, it puts uh, Donald Trump really where he's at his best, which is slightly back on his heels, playing the victim uh, and and talking about being picked on, which in this particular case, he is being picked on. Uh, you know, this is just, uh, you know, I, I, obviously I'm not in, in uh, Merrick Garland's head, but uh, this I think this was tactically and politically a, a partisan thing. And I think it was a mistake. I think it's going to it's really already, uh, you know, biting them back. Especially since, Ted, if we're talking about a high profile political figure mishandling government documents, I seem to recall a conversations about a certain candidate for president who did not get elected uh, doing something with a hammer uh, taking a hammer to hard drives that contained State Department documents. And I, I don't know, maybe I'm just being extra petty today, but I just really feel like this is also egg on the face of the Democratic Party. And it is proving the GOP and the Trump faction right in saying uh, when they say that, you know, Biden is going to use the DOJ to come after Trump and and as you said that, you know, they are really uh, not they don't have anything on him while they completely ignored the very same alleged misdeeds from their own candidate, Ted. I mean, it, it smells hypocritical to me, but what do you think about that? Um, yeah, it, it it does feel completely hypocritical. I mean, I think most Democrats have sort of willfully, quote unquote, forgotten about Hillary Hillary Clinton's emails, and in a highly partisan uh, divide between uh, you know the siloed media outlets, you know Hillary's emails is now up there, uh, you know, with Benghazi or any of these other stories that people say, you know, well that's just the Republicans, or you know uh, that's like. Uh, 
and they could they throw it all together, including with stuff that really doesn't have legitimacy, like the idea that uh, there's evidence that Trump uh, should have won the, the his reelection campaign. Um, there's, but I think there's, you know, obviously it's there. Um, you know, I, I, in the end, I think currently there's no such thing as a swing voter. Um, presidential elections in the U.S. are are really decided. Uh, based on turnout, you know, Democrats, there's more registered Democrats than Republicans in most places. So if Democrats, you know, uh, ensues their base, they win. If they don't, they lose. Republican base is always pretty enthused. So it kind of boils down to that's where the wiggle room is. And for Democrats, uh, you know, they're kind of just trying to be like, look over here, don't look over there. And uh, that's, I think that's what's going on with these, um, with, with, you know, the, no one's going to talk about the Hillary Clinton stuff because in this country, what happened, you know, in 2016 is ancient history it's, and it's long forgotten. So, uh, but at the same time, it's a long time between now and November in the same way. I just don't think uh, this is, I think this plays into the, into the right hand. I, I, you know, it's, it's it's an interesting kind of like desperation measure uh, by a uh, a Democratic Party that basically doesn't have a lot to point to in terms of terms of successes at this point. I mean, I think the one thing they've real the one issue they've really got working for them, and and I will admit I underestimated this. I was wrong. I, I thought it wouldn't matter. I think it matters more than I thought is uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. That's going to be big for the Democrats if they know how to exploit it. But I still am skeptical that you you can win on one even big issue when the Republicans have several issues that are really running their way in terms of inflation, uh, the economy in general. And then there's sort of hidden secret resentments about things like how the Affordable Care Act isn't working right and, uh, you know, Democrats' failure to address that. And even the environmental, uh, you know, part of the Inflation Reduction Act, which obviously we all have to be in favor of because any step in the right direction is a step in the right direction. But it sort of reminds you it's still not nearly enough. And that just reminds voters subconsciously of the, you know, the, the ineffectiveness of the Democrats. They can't even get their own conference unified. They all, you know, it's all about sucking up to Joe Manchin. So, you know, we'll see what happens. I think the Senate's kind of in play. I still don't think the House is in play. And if my, and my money would still be on the Republicans to take both houses this, this November right now. Yeah. And this is why I agree, Ted, when you said earlier about how this raid is really a gift to Trump and the Republicans. I mean, that was actually my first um, thought when I saw that it even happened, is that Trump is 100 percent going to parlay parlay this whole thing and point to it as a a, a kind of a a political persecution. And I mean, you know, obviously, you know, we don't have sympathies for Trump or the FBI, but just the partisan nature of it, uh, uh, I think, is clear. You know what I mean? And I feel like from the time, honestly, from the time that Trump emerged as a real contender in the presidential race in the United States, 
I feel like they've just been handing him W after W after W, whether it's the impeachments or whether it's, you know, the Clinton camp wanting to amplify Trump um, out of an attempt to sort of highlight his absurdity to the American people. And all it did was give him free coverage. I mean, down to this raid, uh, just so many things that um, uh, the Democrats have done uh, in the time since Trump. I mean, I often liken it to uh, throwing a dirt rock at a tank. You know, it just explodes on impact. You know, there was this really annoying period where it seemed like uh, every other day there was something that came out that was going to be the nail in the coffin that was going to end Trump once and for all, whether it was the Steele dossier or the Mueller trials or whatever and what have you, or even the impeachments like I was mentioning earlier. But I mean, these were just not things that were ever going to work. And I think you also mentioned earlier about how there are some very legitimate things that you could go after Trump for that could possibly have an impact. But the Democrats would rather just, uh, you know, uh, just do a bunch of nonsense, basically, and engage in a bunch of political theater and take us all through these dog and pony shows that don't help anyone, them least of all. You know what I mean? And so particularly as we move towards the uh, uh, midterms in this country and in a couple of years, uh, of course, uh, 2024 will be another presidential election. It really just feels like Democrats are digging their own grave in a lot of ways. And what's most frustrating about it to me, Ted, is that if the Democrats do indeed lose power and this far right a Trumpist element regains power from the standpoint of the Democrats, it'll be everybody's fault but their own, you know? Oh, it always is. And I mean, you know, what they're forgetting is sort of one of the basic, uh, one of the simplest lessons, I'm sorry, um, rules of politics, which is you don't want to just, you know, engage in battles that you can't win because it dispirits your troops. Um, you know, it's like you want to, you want to, you can do it from time to time on principle. But if you really know the outcome is doomed, you really shouldn't try to fight it. You should really try to go for the, you know, choose the battles you can win. Um, that's going to make, you know, with, to be a Democrat, unfortunately, though, as a voter, is you just know time and time again, you know, it's like uh, they're going after after Donald Trump. But Donald Trump is like, you know, he's like Wild E. Coyote. <laughs> Got him blown up. He just keeps coming back in the next scene, and he looks great. Um, and I think the fact that they that that keeps happening, and frankly, this should be easier. You know, I mean, Donald Trump was a real estate. It is a real estate developer. Uh, you know, it's kind of like corruption is kind of part of the job description. Um, you know, he lived. He was doing construction in New York. That's what he had. He had. Roy Cohn as his lawyer. I mean, this is a, a guy who he ha not only did he, but he had to have been dirty. They could nail him if they knew what they were doing. And their inability to do that just sort of shows how hapless and foolish they are. And, you know, people who are supporting the Democratic Party, you know, they, they're kind of expecting their party go after him in, in an effective way, but they can't. They're just not you know, I mean, there's just it's and it just reminds them all the time that their whole situation is hopeless. I mean, if this, if this were look at what they got Bill Clinton on, they nailed Bill Clinton. I mean, granted, they didn't convict him in the Senate, but they nailed him. And I think they really tarnished him um, with some of, you know, even with Democrats 
over this impeachment, over you know, a pretty lying about oral sex. It was a, kind of a trivial thing um, in comparison with some of the stuff that Trump is accused of, like business fraud. Um, but uh, and, and, you know, and arguably sedition. Um, so it's uh, you know the fact that they that the, that the Democrats can't bring it home. You know, it, it's not that Trump is that wily; it's that the Democrats are that stupid. Yeah. And, you know, I do think that's the case, Ted, when we consider how all of these things play out. And this is why we always on this show uh, uh, sort of emphasize the importance of people developing a political element outside of uh, the duopoly, because what we're dealing with is a center right party in uh, the Democrats and a far right party in the Republicans, neither of which has the interest of the rank and file person uh, in this country at heart. And there's really no one that's uh, uh, fighting for them. And I think more and more people are starting to feel that in a a more visceral way as they continue to watch their uh, uh, conditions deteriorate here. And it, 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 it would, it would be, frankly comical to see just the the stumbling and fumbling and ridiculousness that these people get up to if there weren't such serious implications not only for those of us in this country but for i would argue global humanity and for uh the planet itself i mean there there are just so many existential threats that are facing average people here in this country that uh you know these ruling class officials in the white house and in congress simply don't have to worry about because of their uh, uh of their class position and because of their wealth and all these things like this and so we're talking about two groups of people literally two classes that just live and operate in two completely different worlds. And the difference is, is that as of now, uh, those ruling class elements, those who represent that wealthy minority, they have the power to do these things that they're doing. And therefore, you and I need to build power to do the same. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Ted Rawls, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.